It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. A U.S. district judge in Washington state has affirmed a controversial recommendation that could shut down summer trolling for king salmon in southeast Alaska this summer. Judge Richard A. Jones signed the two-page order on Tuesday, which now requires the National Marine Fisheries Service to remedy a violation of the Endangered Species Act concerning a threatened population of killer whales in Puget Sound. In addition, the ruling vacates the incidental take statement, under which the National Marine Fisheries Service may manages the commercial harvest of Chinook salmon in southeast Alaska during the summer. The lawsuit was brought against NMFS by the Duval, Washington-based Wild Fish Conservancy in early 2020. In a news release, the Alaska Trollers Association, which intervened in the suit on behalf of NMFS, says it will work with the state of Alaska to appeal the ruling to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and likely ask for a stay of the order. Director, Director Amy Doherty wrote, The ATA will continue to fight for the way of life of its members and the communities of Southeast Alaska. An indigenous Alaskan author is hoping to break through into popular fiction. Matt Gilbert already has a pair of significant nonfiction books under his belt, but he wouldn't mind crossing over into film work or novels set in a galaxy far, far away, in a genre that might be known one day as Gwich'in sci-fi. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. Matt Gilbert has written The Serious Stuff. The 2005 graduate of the University of Alaska in English Literature just published The Gwich'in Climate Report, a compilation of his interviews with Athabascan community members, hunters, and trappers on regional adaptation to climate change. An earlier book, Sitting at Their Feet, is a memoir of his coming of age during a time of cultural transition. It was published in 2021 by the Epicenter Press. Listening to elders is something we should all spend more time doing, but for Gilbert, even growing up in Arctic Village, there was something else. I was a big, 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 huge sci-fi nerd. Totally Star Wars fan all the way, Star Trek fan all the way, uh, Lord of the Rings fan, Willow fan. And I love these movies, but I, I always wondered, like, what about us? Don't we have any stories, us Native people, Native Americans, you know? Star Trek is still celebrated for bringing racial and ethnic diversity to space. For Gilbert, it wasn't necessarily about the racial makeup of the actors, but their worldviews. He was raised in a culture of storytelling that just wasn't making its way into contemporary science fiction of any kind. As a kid, I was really disappointed, you know, really disappointed. I was a little kid in front of the TV and reading books, too. I was a bookworm early on. I'm like, where's our stories, you know? Where's the modern Native stories, you know, with sci-fi, with fantasy, with any anything? And uh, I waited. When I was 15 years old, I was in high school, and, and I got tired of waiting. I was like, okay... If no native person's gonna, no native writers gonna write the stories I want to hear. I'll write, and that's what I did. He did, but not as Matthew Gilbert. You can find his first trilogy under the name Wolf Golan, Wolf for his first dog, and Golan, a tribute to his grandmother's family name. The series is called Chandira, and Gilbert began writing it in high school. It's set 300 years in the future, and its protagonist is Maxwell Wilkes, a Gwich'in Athabascan. For the novels to work, Gilbert had to project not only the future of civilization as a whole, but the future of his culture. He was pleased to learn that many of his peers believe that people will still identify as Gwich'in three centuries from now. When I was writing it, I spoke to Native American people, even young people, like 20-year-olds, right? And uh, I said, 
in 300 years, what do you think would be, how do you think we'd be? And they'd be like, oh, we'd be heavily Westernized or old culture would be long. I mean, they're still trying to be Gwich'in, but it's been so long since they were connected to the real, you know, culture, like 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Gilbert says he's been criticized for creating a character who tips too far into Western standards of heroism, but he argues that the differences are subtle. In the first book of the Chandira series, for example, Max Wilkes rides into battle quietly. In contrast to Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and other Western guys yelling stuff, In another nod that is probably equal parts cultural and autobiographical, Gilbert's hero sleeps late. Since Gilbert first started creating the world of the Chandira trilogy as a high school student, he's pleased that Native American science fiction is seeing a renaissance through the works of authors like Rebecca Roanhorse and scholars like Grace Dillon, a professor at Portland State University whom he considers a mentor. And there are new characters, too, who are pushing the Native American worldview into space. A favorite of Gilbert's is Kamina Drummer, a pivotal figure in the huge sci-fi hit The Expanse. Gilbert self-published the Chandira series, but he's hoping a publisher might take the trilogy to the next level, into the world of trade fiction. In the meantime, to pay the bills, he and a colleague run a management company, and he works occasionally in construction. He vividly remembers finishing his English literature degree and looking around the university at friends studying to become engineers and other professionals. Eighteen years on, he's still content with his choice to pursue writing. But if I could go back and do it all over again, I I don't think I would change anything. I I like being a writer. I like telling stories. However, um, I do actually want to do different things from this time onward. Gilbert is hoping to expand his creative range and possibly move into music, Whatever is ahead, it's unlikely to be a normal job. I tried to get a normal job and be normal, he said. Writing just wouldn't leave me alone. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. The Greens Creek Silver Mine on Admiralty Island is looking to expand. In March, the National Forest Service put out an environmental assessment to look at a few different expansion plans. Public comment on those plans is open until next week. But as KTOO's Anna Canny reports, some environmentalists say expansion should be delayed until more research is done on the mine's heavy metal contamination. The Hecla Greens Creek Mine on Admiralty Island is making plans to expand their waste storage facility. It's a crucial step in extending the life of the mine. But some environmentalists have questions about the mine's impact in the Tongass National Forest, where it operates. Are these metals bioaccumulating up the food chain? You get fugitive dust, and is that lead being taken up by the plants, and then in turn being concentrated through the deer and the eagles and this and that? And and what's happening to those populations? That's Guy Archibald. He's a contract scientist for the nonprofit Friends of Admiralty Island. And one of their chief concerns is fugitive dust. In simple terms, that's the dust that blows off of mining waste, and it can carry traces of toxic metals like lead with it. Greens Creek is known as the nation's largest silver producer, but they also mine gold, zinc, and lead. When all of that valuable material is extracted, the leftover rock is stored in something called tailings. They're basically piles of ground rock that are managed by the mine. And that's where fugitive dust comes from. Without more space to store tailings, the mine's operation could end within a decade. This proposed expansion would be the third since the mine opened in 1989. Mike Satry manages government and community relations for Greens Creek. 
He says that from the mine's perspective, the expansion is pretty routine. It's really um, just a continuation of managing our tailings facility the way we always have, but uh, simply letting us add uh, a little bit more space. The Forest Service looked at four different options for the expansion in an environmental assessment. That came out in March. The public has the opportunity to comment on those options until next week. There are few outright opponents to the mine's continued operation, especially since Greens Creek is one of Juneau's most prominent private employers. But environmental groups like Friends of Admiralty Island are calling for more signs before the plans move forward. We need more uh, baseline information that compares the existing situation to what it was before the mine started. That's John Neary. He's the president of Friends of Admiralty Island. And he sums up the key concern that many environmentalists share at this stage. Greens Creek already does a lot of monitoring. They check water quality, sediment, and tissue samples from marine animals like mussels or sea worms. But some say that monitoring doesn't do enough to compare current conditions to pre-mining conditions. In other words, they say there's not enough science to understand the cumulative impacts of the mine. And some are especially concerned about Hawk Inlet. It's an important source of subsistence food for Juno and Angoon. And the existing tailing storage sits nearby. Neary says the existing monitoring doesn't do enough to ensure the health of those subsistence resources. One of our top concerns is that there are people that eat whatever it is that occurs in the marine environment, right? There are crabs and clams and halibut and seals. Uh, so it needs to be safe enough for human consumption. Hawk Inlet was at the center of a debate just recently. Archibald released a study on behalf of Friends of Admiralty Island. It claimed a 50% increase in lead levels for the inlet based on an analysis of clamshells collected there. The study attributes that increase to fugitive dust. These findings attracted the attention of both the mine and the state. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation publicly called the clamshell study misleading in a press release last month. But the state and the mine cited long-term studies of clam tissue samples in the inlet. They show no increase in lead. And Sadri says he's confident in that data. There's an overall conclusion that the mine is not significantly you know, impacting Hawk Inlet. And that's been a, a recurring message from, from the agencies, both, uh, you know, both state and federal. But concerned stakeholders say tissue samples don't speak to the health of the whole marine ecosystem. For instance, there's no regular monitoring of seals. And that's an important subsistence resource. Archibald says he hopes the mine will consider a more robust population study to prove the health of the inlet. The public comment period will remain open now through Thursday, May 8th. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. Mm-hmm.